Well, hello there. Welcome to Journey Through the Epistles with Daniel Babalola. I am Daniel Babalola and I'm inviting you on a journey as we study the epistles in the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I believe that a solid understanding of what is contained in the epistles would serve as a strong foundation for all our Christian expression. And not just that, that when we take the words of the apostles and properly understand them in their context as they meant it to be understood, our entire Christian experience stands the chance of being so much more flourishing. So join me on this journey. Let's go. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity we get to learn and study and grow together through your word. I pray that even as we continue this teaching um, through 2 Corinthians and more specifically through Christian generosity, I pray that you open our hearts to your word. I pray that the truth of your word rings true in our hearts. I pray that we are able to understand and to apply everything that we learn um, into the day-to-day to day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen, 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 amen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Again, um, hi, Mary, good to see you. Hi, Precious, good to see you. Hope you're doing well. Um, welcome to Journey Through Second Corinthians, Part Nineteen. Um, don't let the number scare you. <laughs> glad, glad to hear you're doing well, Part Nineteen. And uh, by God's grace, we still have some ways to cover, but God is with us. Um, we're currently starting a new in quotes topic, I guess. As far as the context of the letter is concerned, we're transitioning into a new conversation on generosity and um, how that looked like for Paul and for the Corinthian people as well. And uh, last week, we started off with introduction as normal, just to kind of set the ground for the context, what to expect, what we're going to be talking about in the next couple weeks and I guess the major thing we emphasized in the introduction last week, which I would implore anyone who is just joining now, whether in person or, well, not in person, over Zoom or in the podcast, please listen to at least last week's teaching, if not the whole of it, but last week's teaching, just to get a full flow of thoughts on this topic on Christian generosity. But um, I think the emphasis two major things we emphasized last week. The first one was the idea of agency. And I don't know if this was the first time or this is the first time it's like, oh, wow, I never saw it this way. But I hope it's something that really, oh, the sound is a bit low. Is that just Mary or for other people, can you let me know, be on mute or put it in the chat. Is the sound fine for you guys? How's how's the sound? Is it is it from my end? Is it is it general? Anyone? Okay, it's fine. Uh, maybe one more person, and then I'll be sure. Which tiebreaker? Okay, it's fine. 
Mary, maybe you'd probably need to either increase your volume or maybe change the earpiece you're using to listen. All right, good luck. <laughs> but yes, what was I saying? Um, the idea of divine agency, both from God's end and from the devil's end, and how a lot of things, if we would only be more discerning, would start to see that we that God is operating even in the most unsuspecting of ways. And the same way the devil is also operating, even in the most unexpected or unsuspecting of ways. And I, I over this week, a friend reached out to me. Um, and it was such, it was probably the highlight of my week. I, I guess um, a couple events happened and I guess from a natural perspective, not so pleasant. And this person took it so well. Um, it's like, oh, wow, I, I could even laugh through it. I'm trusting God. And I'm like, I'm I'm really, really glad to hear a believer speak like this. And she went on to say that, oh, actually last week's teaching on divine agency and learning to discern the operation of God really helped. And that helped, that, that made my week, honestly, because... If you've been here for any amount of time, you'd know one thing that I tend to often emphasize, I refuse to say overemphasize because it's so important, is beyond coming and hearing the word of God taught, whether on a Saturday morning like this, on a Sunday morning like um, tomorrow, whatever church you go to, listening to a sermon during the week, beyond acts of devotion, which are good in themselves, finding time to pray, finding time to study, listening to teachings. The proof of growth is oftentimes seen in what you do in your day-to-day -day events. When that person hurts you and you choose to forgive, then we know you're growing. When something bad happens, but you choose to rejoice, then we can say, oh, this person is growing in their faith. Right, Because at the end of the day, you think about it, how often, how much time do we spend in acts of devotion? It's the same thing we heard growing up. That Okay, let's say you only go to church on Sunday. That's just two hours out of an entire week. Let's say you sleep eight hours, you're awake for how many? <laughs> 24 minus eight. Mathematician, 16, Abby. 16 hours in one day, multiply that by seven, which is what? I don't know. 112? I can't remember. But... Um, Imagine two hours out of a hundred and I was like, oh, I go to church every Sunday. That's amazing. But that's like saying I give God two hours out of over a hundred. That's less than 2% of my time. You can say, oh, I pray an hour every day. And that is good, right? Going to church every Sunday is good. Praying an hour every day. Oh, wow, that's good. But that's still what? Seven hours. So let's add it. Two hours in church. Seven hours extra, that's what, nine hours. Okay, beautiful. It's still less than 10% of your, of your week. Oh, I also read my Bible for another hour every day. Amazing. Beautiful. That's, um, that's, that is a healthy devotional life. But it's still what? An extra seven hours. And that's what? What are we? Nine plus seven? Sixteen. Sixteen hours out of a hundred and something. It's still what? How many? What's the percentage? Do the math. 16 over 110. That's how many. It's, I don't know the percentage. It's less than 15% of your time. Let's even say you now go even the extra mile. So you, you go to church on Sunday. You pray one hour every day. You read your Bible one hour every day. Amazing. Most 
Many people struggle to even meet that kind of consistency. Let's add another two hours. Maybe on midweek service, you can all you also have the time to go for midweek service. That's still what 18 hours. Let's say, oh, I listen to two sermons every week. <laughs> A sermon is probably an hour or an hour 30 minutes if it's like JCT. That's like what three hours. Where are we at now? Who's counting? Where what before? <laughs> 16, 18, I don't know, 19. It's not less than 20 hours. Right? And like, okay, I'm done. I am such a good Christian. On one hand, that is true. But on the other hand, it's not. That's like saying, oh, I give God about 15% of my time, so I'm a good Christian. So if we say it that way, you, you, you already know that there's an issue. <sighs> 15% of my time to the one who made me, that sounds small. But if I say, oh, two hours, and I pray every day, I read my Bible every day, I go to church on Sunday and Wednesday, you're like, wow. Why does that sound big, but 15% of our time sounds small? The answer is in Christian living. The answer lies in understanding that the whole essence of acts of devotion is to prepare you to continually live for the rest of your week, to take that identity, to take that communion, to take that fellowship, that transformed heart to the rest of your life. And so on one hand, you have devotion on lockdown. That's beautiful. It is beautiful. And I'm not, I don't want to ever make light of a consistent devotional life. But then you can start to see that a devotional life is only, is only truly effective if it affects the other, what, 85 or 80% of your time. And that is what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the Roman church in Romans 12, when it says, therefore, I beseech you, Brethren, we can turn there. Romans 12, 1 to 2. Very common and very popular um, scripture. Romans 12, 1 to 2. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, your entire self. Don't just present your Sunday morning. Don't just present your morning, two hours of devotion, and then you head out into the day. This is one of the verses I love the way the message puts it. In Romans 12 verse 1 in the message, it says, here is what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work, and your walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. And so my emphasis, just in case you've lost me, is it's beautiful that you make out time to listen to a one hour, 30 minute Bible exposition. It really is. But where it counts is what you do for the rest of the week. Last week, we learned about divine agency. The fact that you are seated and learning, it's a good thing. Jesus said it. Mary has chosen what is better. It's a good thing. 
There are a million and one other things you can be doing on a Saturday morning. You chose to hear this guy talk about divine agency. It is a good thing and God honors that. But the reward or the proof that it was not a waste of time would happen on a Tuesday afternoon when your co-worker suggests that you all should do something like, oh, I learned about divine agency. This is not a good idea. Or when a friend does something or is in need, they say, oh, I learned about Christian generosity. This is an opportunity for me to act on the word. Then that Saturday morning was not a waste. That Sunday teaching was not a waste. But if you go on a Sunday morning, you, you claim to pray every morning, you are jumping at your feet, you are rejoicing. You're like, God, I love you. You make all those declarations. And then Sunday night, your friend hurts you. And like, what done? Wasted your time. That's a clear case of, oh, God only has 20% of your heart. But the 80% is the world. It's, it's your choices. It's your own opinions, your own influences. And what that, that's what it is. But the moment you, you make those 20% or that, that 15% of your life begin to count. That's why you read in the Psalms, yes, they had times of devotion, but it seems as though the way David talks, he's always thinking about what he's learning, always thinking about what he read, always thinking about how can I apply this? The true mark of Christian devotion is not in the time spent in devotion. The true mark of Christian devotion is in the proof of your life when you are not having those moments of devotion. And that applies to any spiritual activity. Oh, I went on a spiritual retreat. Thank God. You took three days out of a year. Think about it, the time we even spend in retreats. Even if you say, I, I'll pray the first of every, I'll fast and pray the first, it's still 12 days out of 365. If you take the first week of the year and the last week of you say, it is for God, it's still what, 10 days out of 365. My point is the actions of devotion will never be the majority of your time. It's not possible unless, unless you just dissociate from working, from interacting, and you say, God is just praying for the rest of my life. Even God will say, that's not what I asked you to do because he said, go into the world, <laughs> right? The early church didn't give up their jobs. They didn't give up their careers. They didn't give up relationships. They didn't give up family even while having a beautiful, vibrant, devotional life. And so what does that mean? It means that your devotional life is productive, is only as productive as what your life looks like when you are not having moments of devotion. That retreat you had or that you are about to have is only as effective as what we see after the retreat, not not. The goal is not, oh, in this moment, I did this for three days. That is good. But did it really change anything? Did it really set anything in motion? Did it really bring you closer to God? You wept. You worshipped. You gave. You wrote notes. You prayed. Beautiful. And then what? And then what? And then what? For the disciples, how did they know 
that these people had been with Christ? How did they know that these people had changed? Yes, they saw them in the temple every day. And we're about to read that actually today. It's part of the proof of Christianity, generosity. Yes, they saw them in the temple. Like, oh, okay, those guys that pray. But what was the biggest mark? They saw their love walk. They saw the outreaches. And they're like, ah, these people have been with Christ. These people have been with Christ. It was more than their prayer meetings. It was more than their Bible studies. It was in the, pro the, the, the results of those moments of devotion that proved to the world. Jesus speaking. He says, by this shall all men know you are my disciples. He didn't say by your worship meetings. He didn't say by you going to church on Sunday. He said by how you love one another. What you do outside those moments. Of course, it is those moments that produce or should produce the action. But then we know those moments were effective by the results that follow. And so, again, as I have done time and time again, let it not be that, oh, I'm here just to grow my knowledge. Oh, this Bible passage was always tricky to me, but thank God for that. For Daniel, he would explain it. Oh, I, I, I went through all of Corinthians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's a good thing. It's something you should be proud of. Oh, I actually spent time in the Word. But what will make it count, both for you and for others, is what you do outside those two hours, those five hours, those ten hours a week of Christian devotion. I hope that makes sense. And so it's the question you should start asking yourself. When you say, oh, how is the quality of my devotion? Look at two things. Number one, look at maybe the time you're spending in devotion, sure. Because if, if you're doing it well, then increasing the time would increase the results. But then also look at the results. I'm praying every day. Am I kinder? Am I, am I, do I worry less? Do I find out that even when things happen, that I'm not happy about. My joy is still intact. That's how to know that, okay, I'm a growing Christian. Because some people, unfortunately, have focused so much on that, the other part of just time. And say, oh, am I a growing Christian? I used to pray 10 hours. I used to pray one hour. Now I'm praying one hour, 20 minutes. I'm a growing Christian you might miss it because at the end of the day, it's even possible that that prayer time just becomes mindless activity. You just want to run a clock down and assume that you're growing. And that's why we now start to wonder. It's something we ask ourselves every time. All these Christians, how can he be praying so long and he's so, un so unforgiving? That is why. Because he thinks growth is measured by time in devotion. Oh, how can he be... Uh -uh. This Christian, you see this person so, so fervent in worship, but so angry. They have a hot temper. Why? It's because of this thing I'm telling you about. He's a worker in church, and he's sleeping with his, sleeping around with, with, with women. Why? It's this thing I'm telling you. You somehow blinded yourself by devotional activity that you don't realize that it's not bringing you any closer to God. 
And that's what the Pharisees did. They attended every event, said every prayer routine, memorized scripture, dressed the way they were supposed to dress. And what did God call them? Whitewashed tombs. On the outside, it's like you're a grave, you're a gravesite or a coffin. Outside is beautiful, maybe overlaid with gold. Like, wow, what a beautiful coffin. But no matter the beauty of a coffin, it doesn't take anything away from the fact that inside that coffin is death, decay, and rottenness. And rottenness. And so I beg you, don't be a coffin Christian. Don't be a coffin. Let all those activities, all those things those moments and seasons of devotion, those investments in the word and in meetings and in study and in prayer and in worship, let it produce something tangible, something that everyone can look at you and say, hmm, angel has been with Christ. I can tell. Oh, Yomifer has been with Christ. I can tell. I can't tell because she told me she just came back from a six-hour prayer meeting. Mm -mm. I can tell because everybody in the office is worried that they are going to lose their job, but she's calm. I can tell because I was in the car with Lillian and someone did something. She received a call and she didn't yell in anger. I can't tell. I can tell because... I, was, I went to visit Delight and I saw how she treated her roommates. That's how I can tell that she has been with Christ. Not that I was with her and weren't able to do anything because she was praying from morning till night. That's a good thing. That's a, it's a good thing. But if after the prayer meeting, we were, we were about to go, the roommate asked for food and she yelled, can't you buy your own food? Get out of here. I'm like, ah. <laughs> What's the, you might as well not have prayed. What's the difference? <laughs> What's the difference? Right. I hope that makes sense. And so let the word work. Let the word of God work. Let your, your metric for spiritual growth, let it revisit it. Amen? Amen. So we talked about agency last week, right? And we brought that into generosity, like for the church in Jerusalem. Like God is our provider. God promised to be with us with us to take care of us a famine is coming the famine is not going anywhere how is god going to do that what was god's answer through the generosity of the gentile churches and so it wasn't through oh we would prosper in the midst of a famine <laughs> they did not prosper if they were farmers they, are far, they didn't have crop it was through the generosity of the church. And thank God, they were open enough to receive God's provision through agency. And that's what we talked about, being positioning yourself to receive from God regardless of agency, not to box him up. That, oh, I'm asking for clarity and so all I'm waiting for is a dream. If a dream does not come, God has not told me what he wants to do. You're only making things harder for yourself. Oh, I'm, I'm trusting God for um, what now? I don't know. A job. If the job doesn't happen through this way, this way, this way, then God hasn't answered. 
you're making things hard for yourself. To be open to the agency of God. So if you haven't listened to last week's teaching, I highly recommend you do. Today, I wanted to share the second part of the introduction. <laughs> We're still in our introduction. And then we'll head into chapter 8, verse 1, if time permits. On that note, turn your Bibles to... <laughs> Angel is laughing. It is well. God will help us all. Um, I have, I've given up on trying to cover material. I'm not just like, at this point, let's be going. As long as we're moving forward, let's just be going. Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42. Alright, give me a second. As usual, I'm reading from the New King James. Acts 2 verse 42. Let's read to verse, verse 47. It says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' uh, doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Again, I love how Acts 2.42 buttresses what I'm saying. It highlights their moments of devotion, but he also talks about the life they lived outside devotional hours. And it seems it's that sum total, devotion plus practice, that made them gain the favor of the people and increase the church. Again, Acts 4. That was Acts 2.42. I want to read both and then we'll... We'll talk a bit about it. Acts 4. Hold on. Give me a second. Sorry. My Bible went weird. Acts 4 verse 32. Acts 4 verse 32. All right. Let's read. It says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. We see that again. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Again, right? Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. Now, if you are reading this many times with the 21st century Christian mindset, if you read that no one in the church lacked, what are you going to think? Oh, everyone has a successful business. Everyone is working in nine to five. Everyone is doing well for themselves. Is that what that phrase means? It says, no. Why did no one in the church lack? For all who were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each 
as anyone had need. So why did no one in the early church lack? Was it because they were all operating under divine favor? And so everything their hands touched turned to gold? Not necessarily. It was because those who had more were generous enough to give to those who had little. That was God's strategy for divine provision. <laughs> Generosity. Generosity. Let's read on. It says, and Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. Two very similar passages talking about how the early church acted and grew. And it goes back to what we said last week, agency. It says no one lacked. Why? Because those who were rich were generous enough to give to those who were poor. And I don't know about you, but I remember when I started to take my walk with God seriously and I was reading the Bible and I read the book of Acts. Those two passages troubled me a lot. And if you are, <laughs> if you are born into Western culture, those passages probably trouble you as well because you're like ah so does that mean i should just go and sell everything i have and just give to the church so i cannot build it so if i build it i should just sell it and give to the church if i get saved and i have property around the world i should sell it and give it to the church is that what that means or i should not even what's the point of trying to buy a house like oh i'm getting married in two years maybe i should i should buy a house now so that we can live in a house listen no, the money I've been saving up for my house, I will give it to the church. <laughs> is, is that, and I don't know about you, but I wrestled with some of those, like what is the balance between generosity and things like saving, investing, building a financial future, which I, I grew up reading Robert Kiyosaki. I grew up reading Graham, um, is it Benjamin Graham? I can't remember his surname. But like books on investing and books on finance and all of that. I'm like, ah, how can I on one hand save, set aside money for investment, set aside money for um, real estate, set aside money to buy a house, my children's education. And on the other hand, I'm reading things like Acts 2. And Acts 1 said they had all things common. <laughs> Nobody said this is my own. It's, everything belonged to each other. What does that mean? What does that mean? And I think on one hand, where I've come to personally, right? And that's what I, that's actually the second part of my introduction is on one hand, I recognize, especially in how legalized and how everything, the way the world is, that verse or those two verses literally Clean it out will be very difficult, if not nigh impossible, to do today. But it doesn't mean we read stuff like I say, oh, that was for 2,000 years ago, um, Jewish Christians. It doesn't apply to me. You would be missing out on a lot. A lot. Before I go on on that, let's go to our final major verse for this introduction, but I, I hope you understand where the problem lies. How do I balance 
generosity with financial responsibility that the whole world seems to say, oh, save, you know, have six months emergency fund, right? Take your monthly expense, have six months worth of that. Oh, plan to do this, plan to do that, save for this, save for that. Yeah, it looks like they didn't even have savings. <laughs> Someone joins the church, is doesn't have money to, you just take out <laughs> as a, yeah, apostles, this is my entire life savings. It is now for the church. Do with it as you want. Is that what was going on? Let's 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 go into the final verse. Deuteronomy 15. Some of you are like, eh, eh. oh wow, we're going to Deuteronomy. <laughs> we still read from those books. Yes, we do. Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy 15. All right. I want you to pay attention. And when you catch it, maybe leave a comment in the chat. If you've never understood this, yes, you're right, Bolo. It's good to pause and think on these things. Um, it goes back to what we said at the beginning. Beyond just reading the Bible, what does this mean? <laughs> so we're going to read Deuteronomy 15. I'm going to stop. And when you catch something, I want to, I want you to, to um let me know. Although, hmm. Uh, let me read from a different translation so that the contrast is very clear. I'm reading from the ESV. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release, verse one, right? And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it. But whatever is yours, whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Like, amen. <laughs> Let's read on. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this command that I command you today. Something important there. We'll get there. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you, and you shall lend to many nations. Amen. And you shall not borrow. Amen. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you, one of your brother, hold on, uh, da, 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 da. Oh, yes. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor. Ah. Mm. In any of your towns, within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the release, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cries to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord will bless the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Verse 11. For there will never cease to be poor 
in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Do you see the contradictions, seeming contradictions? In verse 4, it says, there will be no poor among you. Amen! You will lend, you will not borrow. Amen! Verse 11, there will never cease to be poor among you. In the same chapter, the same sets of instructions. If you've read Acts 2 that we just read, if you've read Acts 4 that we've just read, if you just followed through on Deuteronomy, and if you understand how Israel and the law was a huge representation of the church of God, already some dots should start to connect in your head or some very important principles on Christian generosity or that needed balance. You know, we're here because I asked, what is the balance between everything I have belongs to the church and financial responsibility? Some of those things should start to be clear. If it's not clear, don't worry. That's my job. By the end of today, hopefully, oh no, by the end of 2 Corinthians 9, hopefully those things are a lot clearer. But if you've read through, now I'm switching my translation back. I just wanted to point that clear, almost opposing sentences. There will be no poor among you, but there will be poor among you. But if you read through Deuteronomy 15, what are some things you observe? And feel free to put it in the chat. I'm actually very curious. What are some things that stand out to you from this 11 verses? Maybe you've read it before. Maybe you haven't. But with everything I've said last week to this point, what are some things that stand out to you? I want to actually hear your thoughts. I'll take one, two, or three thoughts. What are some things that stand out to you? That there would always be needs in the church to be met. Very true. And again, it's important when we say church, don't think of new speaker. That's not all it is. It's part of it. Think of people in the church. The church is a group of people. What you have is not only for you. Very important. That's a good one. There would always be needs in your Christian community, number one. Number two, what you have is not for you. And yes, the implication then is if you have, you should always give. I like that. I, I, like, I like where we are going with this. So it's starting to get clear. Some of the things that stick out in Deuteronomy 15 and in also the two chapters we read in Acts is that what? Generosity was always to meet needs. I said that last week. That the, the foundation of generosity is that, verse 11, there would always be people that need. And there would always be people that have more than they need. We're going to talk about that at a later verse in chapter 8 when Paul uses the story of the manna. Beautiful illustration. But before then, it's still there. And feel free to still put thoughts in the chat. Don't worry. That, that's fine. There would always be people that need and there would always be people that have more than they need. And they, by implication, both in Deuteronomy and in Acts, how does God take care of those that need? Is it through 
a secret provider somewhere? Is it through some favor from somewhere that the person does not know about? Yes, God can do that. He did that to the widow that had that was that, that had just a jar of oil, right? He did that to the person that was about to die. That he did that to Elijah. He did that to the Israelites in the wilderness where there was no help available. But before God steps in in supernatural ways, remember agency last week. What is God's expectation? That those that have more than they need should always be willing to give to those who need. Emphasis on need. Remember, poor need. Before we start to say, oh, ah, this my brother wants to buy a new shoe. <laughs> Therefore, I'm obligated to give him the money. Not really. <laughs> we'll talk about that in the excesses. Like I said, this is an entire teaching, so be patient with me. I know some people are already saying, ah, but there, there can be abuses of this. And you're right. There could be lazy people. And you're right. I'm actually getting there now. But before we even start to talk about nuances and exceptions and exaggerations and how people have abused some of these things, let's even identify what is true biblically. And what is true biblically? That in a Christian community of which Israel was a prototype, right? This is God's people. Israel was God's people the same way the church of God is God's people. There would always be poor among you. Translation, there would always be people that need. Before you say, oh my God, if I'm a Christian, I cannot need. Mm -mm. <laughs> there will always. When he said among you, he's not saying in the world. He's not saying that homeless guy you drove by. Even though, yes, that counts as generosity. This was the nation of Israel. He said there would always be poor Israelites. Same thing in the church. There would always be people in your Christian community that need. And what does God expect? That those who have more than they need, not more than they want, more than they need, should be able or should be generous enough to help those who don't have what they, again, need. Very important point. Number two that we can draw from this, or I don't know what number, but another thing we can draw from this is, hold on, there's a, the verse is there. Just give me a second. Yes, verse 10. All these points I'm highlighting, I hope you are taking it because what we're going to see is as we read through 8 and 9, it's just be the same thing again and again. Verse 10, it says, I like verse 9 and 10 because what does it say? It says every seven years, that's how the, the chapter started. At the end of a seven year, if anybody owes you anything, you let them go. The, the expectation, pay attention because like I said, this thing has been very abused. The expectation is that if the person hasn't paid or is still owing you then, the reason is because they cannot pay. Not because they don't want to. This is not a case of, oh, I owe, um, who now? I owe Mary 2K. But I know that tomorrow is January 1st and it's the seventh year. If I don't pay her, she has to let me go. So therefore, I won't pay. 
Again, what is the law? The law is an ideal, and that's where I'm going to. A lot of these laws were presented to be ideals. Unfortunately, human beings, remember, what's the goal of the law? To reveal the brokenness of humanity. To reveal the fact that barring the sovereign intervention of God, we are horrible. <laughs> like, as a society, we would always go astray. And you can already see that. Imagine a law system where every seventh year, you must forgive every debt. So your car loan that you said, <laughs> I have to let it go. Your 30-year mortgage. <laughs> well, that would not even be poor. I don't think that would have happened with that kind of financial system. But you get the idea. Immediately you hear that. You are even saved, though. But you can already think of two things that would happen. Number one, people will borrow more than they, they can pay back because they know they will get away with it. But that's not what the law was for. That is you abusing the law, revealing your greed. Do you see that? Another thing that could happen is what this chapter addresses. Unfortunately, it doesn't address. Well, so far, we didn't read the one where it addresses the other part. But the other thing that could happen is people will be more stingy. And so as they know that the seventh year is approaching. So let's say if it's year one, I can give you a large sum of money because you have seven years to pay. But if it's year six and your farm burns and you need quick 5K dollars to set yourself back up, I'm like, oh my God, year seven is just two months away. I have the money. Again, I have the money. I can help you. But because I know that year seven is coming, I say, I'm so sorry. Come back in two months. <laughs> When, is, when everything has started, I will give you. And so what happens when God presents? God's ideal is that the only time people ask for help is when they really need it. And that people are hardworking and people will pay back if they can. God's ideal is also that people are generous. But as soon as he gives that law, every human being knows instinctively that there will be a problem in practice. What are the problems? Laziness. Greed dishonesty, and what? Stinginess. Stinginess. And so in God's ideal, Israel ought to be a nation where people that have give to those who don't have, and as a result, nobody's poor. Nobody's poor. Nobody, like, whatever. as far as needs are concerned, everyone has a roof over their head, everyone has food to eat, Everyone has close to it. Yes, some people would still be richer than others, but everyone has what they need. That's the goal, contentment. Everyone has what they need. That's God's ideal. But already you can see that the moment man needs to implement that, it's not going to play out that way. And that's how we resolve that conflict. Sometimes someone can ask you that, oh, Deuteronomy 15 verse 4 says, there will be no poor among you. Deuteronomy 15 verse 11 says there will be poor among you. What is going on? What is going on? There are two major interpretations and like we've, we've, we've talked about a lot. I, well, I might lean more towards one, but either one, 
the point still stands. What is usually the first way people try, theologians try to re reconcile verse 4 and verse 11? It's saying the first way is unless. So you can write this in your note. The first interpretation is unless. So do this unless there's no poor among you. The second interpretation is do this so that there's no poor among you. And I would explain. But so far, are we following? I'm saying a lot. I'm, I guess I'm teaching a lot right now, but I hope we're following. Do we understand what I'm saying? In the words of uh, Chris Rock, do you understand words that are coming out of my mouth? <laughs> <laughs> all right um the second is the second point or second interpretation i'm not sure I, hmm, second i'm not even sure anymore what by se second point of what i've because right now a second point of introduction <laughs> and it's not a yeah, point it's um, more Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, it's... Yeah, you know, you mentioned that something about, like, generosity always needs to me. And then after that, we're, like, from the second point, but I don't think you mentioned that. Hmm. I'm not sure. I'm so sorry. But I guess the point was that these are ideals, and human behavior shows that it's not... It doesn't usually play out that way. I'm not sure if there was a point. Well, if someone has been taking notes, maybe you can help with that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, I didn't number these points in my note that way. But um anyways, let's 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 keep going and hopefully it makes sense at the end. Um, like I said, the first interpretation or the first reconciling attempt is do all of this unless there's no poor among you. And so the interpretation is if you read like NKJV, for instance, it says it talks about from verse 1 to 3, like we read, and says, except when there may be no poor among you, for the Lord will greatly bless you. And so some people interpret that as, do, do this up to the point where there's no longer any poor. Why? Because God would have blessed you guys. God would have blessed you guys. So it will come to a point where there is no poor among you, and so we wouldn't need to do this, the, the whole forgiving of debts and all of that, because everyone has what they need. But then, however, there would always be poor. Why? Because of people's choices. Because of people's laziness. Because of people disregarding. Remember that's what he said in verse 5. Only if you carefully obey the voice of your God. And so the first interpret, the first interpret, the unless interpretation is do this up to the point where there is no poor among you. If you do this, it will get to a point where there's no poor. However, there would always be poor. Why? Because people won't always obey God. And so you're going to have to do it either ways. That's the first interpretation. And like you're going to see now, the second is not much different. It's just one focuses on the poor person. The other focuses on the rich. The other interpretation is do this so that there would be no poor among you. So in the first case is do this as a mitigating strategy until the point where everyone has what they need. The second interpretation is a bit stronger. It's do this as the way to make sure that there is no poor among you. Does that make sense? Like the way there will be no poor among you is because everyone is forgiving debts and everyone is generous. However, However, because of your hearts, 
for you to say there's there will always be a poor among you, it means that Israel is not going to do it. Does that make sense? So on the first point is do this up until the point where there's no poor among you. But because I know that people will constantly make bad decisions, all of that, they won't totally receive God's blessing. And so that point will never come. There would always be poor among you. That focuses on the receiving of God's generosity. The second interpretation is do this as God's way of making sure there's no poor among you. But because, but if there's going to always be a poor, it means that you guys won't be as generous as you should be. And so this strategy will not work. Either scenario is valid. But what makes it sad is that in either scenario, the reason it does not work is because of human nature. And that's that is very important to keep that in mind. Remember, I'm talking about how do you reconcile in your conscience the balance between, oh, I need to save, oh, I need to give, oh, do I give everything I have, oh, do I give even when I don't have? All those questions. Before we even get there, it's important we understand these things. That in God's ideal, if humans fully partnered with God, have you thought about it before? Why does the Bible present, in quote, heaven or better, set, better yet, the new earth as a world without lack? Do you think it's because um, of its, all of a sudden there's infinite abundance of resources? Do you think, what do you think is the major reason people won't lack in the new earth? but people lack now. That's where I'm getting at. Why do you think we live in a world where there's poverty and inequality and lack now, but all of a sudden that magically goes in the new creation? What do you think the difference is? Is the difference in the availability of resources? Not necessarily. The difference is in human nature. Before we talk about generosity, we need to talk about human nature. Because the reason, based on those two interpretations, it means the reason there is inequality and lack right now can be traced to two things. Number one, and again, it's not, well, let's, let's just go. Number one, because people don't position themselves to receive God's generosity. And number two, because people that have don't partner with God's generosity. And so there is a sense in which in the world we live in today, there would always be lack and inequality, even amongst believers. Why? Because either some people don't partner with the wisdom of God. Maybe laziness, maybe fear, maybe whatever to receive his generosity. Whereas some others don't partner with the generosity of God to meet the needs of those that need. And so there would always be poor among you. But whatever interpretation you take, one thing is clear is that human nature, not God. Because God is ready to bless. God is ready to, 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 to prosper. He said it there. I will greatly bless you. In the land, I'm giving you as an inheritance. Verse 6, you will lend to nations. You will not borrow all these promises. You will be an economy that is so stable 
where everyone is doing well, right? However, Israel did not partner with God. And so Israel borrowed and Israel lacked. And many people in Israel lacked. All right? It's the same. And, and that's, what, that's what he's saying. So much so that if you could partner with God's generosity, look at verse 10. We're going to see that in 2 Corinthians, that God is able, verse 9, to provide bread for the farm, um, to the eater and seed for, for the harvest. It says that when you give, God will bless you in your works. So there is a sense in which this idea of scarcity, this idea of I need to gather, I need to keep, I need to collect that keeps a person from generosity is because they don't really trust God. Because what he's saying is that in verse 10, that if you would partner with God's generosity, he said, because of this, God will bless you in all your works, in all that you put your hand to. Paul says something very similar as we are going to see that God is able to cause the works of your hands to abound so that you can even have more to give. Do we see that? Do we see that? So it is theoretically possible to exist in a world where everyone has enough. But the question is, because of human nature, are we going to actually actualize that? The answer is no. The answer is no. And even now, as you're hearing, you're like, oh my God, it's so true. Those rich people, they don't give us what they have. <laughs> I remember, I remember if, if you're familiar with like conversations and like politics and stuff, during elections, you think things like, oh, Elon Musk, if he could only sell 10% of his, his buying Twitter for this billion, he can solve world hunger. All these rich people, if they should just put their money together, World hunger, gone overnight. Theoretically, true. But again, one thing the Bible makes clear is that the solution to this world is not in policies, is not in campaigns, is not in humanitarian efforts. Because the problem with this world is not poverty in itself. It's not lack in itself. It's human nature. It's greed, selfishness, pride, laziness. Am I making sense? And so, a simple way to test it. Let, let's just do this. Be honest with yourself. Because you would think, oh, uh -uh, this makes sense. If everybody gave, everybody has, nobody is lacking. God is a good God. But do you think human beings would be satisfied in a world where everyone had what they needed? I don't think so. You would think so in an idealistic world, but we are broken people. And I would show you a simple reason. Even as we are saved, sanctified, born again, a lot of times people's identities are tied to achieving more than their neighbor. A simple question to ask yourself is, this thing I like, do I like it because it is good? Or do I like it because it's better than what is readily available? Let's give an instance. Oh, I like this dress. Why do you like this dress so much? Is it because it's a dress? It's a nice dress. Or is it because when you wear to that party, you know nobody else would wear anything as good as that. 
And so you like the dress because it is a better dress than any dress you are expecting to see at that event. That is the beginnings of inequality in the world. <laughs> so before you go on and say, all this rich is in your own heart. Be honest with yourself. Oh, I like this car. Do you like the car because it is actually a good car? It meets your needs. The engine works fine. The fuel car, it's good for you. Or do you like the car because when you drive it on the road, as the person's head turns, you say, yes, this is my car. And so the identity or your value of that car is not tied to your needs. It's tied to the fact that others can't have it. It's literally the idea of value. It's, it's, we live in a world that somehow we've been taught that scarcity brings value. Check your heart. Where's your sense of worth coming from? Is it, is it from being better? A simple, another question to always ask yourself, if everyone had this thing, would I still appreciate it? Or I'd want to have something even better? Something even better. Do I like, oh, they say, oh, this school I went to, oh, this job I do, do I like it because of the value in itself? Or do I like it because other people can't go there? Oh, don't you know I'm Harvard, Harvard, Harvard. I'm an Ivy League graduate. Is it because of the quality of the education that you are so proud? Many times, no. It's because that, ident that thing brings a sense of exclusivity. And that is where you get your worth from from knowing that other people somehow, because you have or can do something others can't, you feel you are better than them, it makes you feel good. So before you shout at Elon, before you shout at Bill, you have the same heart. You are just in different financial positions. That's the truth. That's the truth. That's the truth. We live in a world where Scarcity is synonymous with value. But is that always true? Think of salvation. The very idea of salvation is that God loves us all for nothing we have done. For nothing we have done. He doesn't like the, the prettier ones more. He doesn't like the wealthier ones more. He doesn't like any skin color more, any job position more, any financial position more. Very low barrier of entry. Only, first of all, the, the offer is equal. Second, the barrier of entry, very low. So a lot, and that's why even in salvation, many times we still try to find something to brag. Oh, I'll say, but do you know I pray more than you? <laughs> and then you are happy again. Not because you enjoyed the time you spent with God, but because you are doing something others haven't. Again, your worth is tied to exclusivity. Check it. It's not from God. It's not from God. He said, all you have to do is believe. Some people would have wished that the barrier or the offer for salvation was in works. And that's what we see in other religions today. There is a feeling of self-accomplishment that comes from knowing that I am on good terms with God because I didn't lie last week. We like it. We Beyond, even you as a Christian, you like it. Be honest with yourself. You, you like that feeling of, ah, I've not done anything bad today. God likes me. But tomorrow, you now do something wrong. Like, ah, 
you are still finding worth in scarcity. It's the same human problem. Why would they always be poor in the land? It's because of this thing I'm talking about. Because a lot of us humans, our worth is tied to exclusivity. We've not learned what it means to rest in the abundance of God. That's the truth. That's the truth. That's the truth. And so God comes and says, I love you all. Not only that, all you have to do is believe. I don't care how much you have. I don't care if you can do a skill. Imagine you said, hey, thank you. <laughs> I said, God, for you to be saved, thank you. I said, God, what currency, Lord? What currency, Lord? And he says, hmm, that's a hard one. <laughs> 10K dollars. And to those that are now saved, we'll be like, oh, you're not saved? Oh, too bad, too bad. Because you earned it. And now you are feeling good about being saved because you felt you earned it. But that's not God's way. Salvation is for all, available to all. And that is how God expects us to live our lives. Begin to check your heart. The things I have, the things I want. Why do I want them? Why do I value them? Do I value them because of the worth in itself? Again, I'm not saying now it's bad to not want a nice car. I'm saying check your heart. You can want a nice phone because it does all you need it to do. That's fine. You can, let's say you're a photographer. Oh, I really want this camera. Oh, the lens, the this, the that. It's going to really help my photography career, whatever. That's fine. But the moment you start to tie worth, ambitions, and value to exclusivity, you are falling back into human nature. The moment you start to feel a sense of worth, oh, I went to this school that no one else could get to. Problem. Oh, I have a car that other people can't buy. And that's, that's the reason you like the car. Problem. Oh, um, what? I can, I don't know. I, I look better. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fine boy. I'm a fine girl. <laughs> my sister is here and she's saying, Daniel, I will talk to you after service. Don't worry, we're all learning. We're all growing. <laughs> I'm not here saying I'm perfect. If you look at me, my worth is solely found in Christ. No, I'm still growing. I'm still learning. I still make mistakes. And I still need help. Like everyone I'm talking to. You say, oh, I'm pretty. Therefore, I feel I am better. Oh, I have more money. Therefore, the moment worth is tied to exclusivity or superiority. You're falling back into the flesh. You're falling back into the flesh. And so that's a very important point. We're talking about Christian generosity, right? Again, this is still introduction, and that's fine. We've not started chapter 8, verse 1, and that's fine. But I hope we're learning very important things. Before we even start to talk about, oh, how much did I give? Is 10% too much? Uh, what did Paul mean here? What about tithe? Uh, 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 uh. Before we jump, let's, let's address bigger issues that are facing the world today that we try to cover up 
on that master of generosity. Because for some of you, you could still claim to be a generous person, but you are still you still find security in the fact that you have when others don't. And so as you are giving, you are patting yourself on the back. And I know you've done well with yourself. You can you can donate money. It's a problem. It's a problem. It's a problem. And so God presents an ideal to Israel. Right? He presents an ideal. He lets them know that if you guys fully trust in my abundance, trust in my generosity, trust in my ability to meet your needs, not the works of your hands, me, there will be no poor. Why? Because on one hand, y'all would fully participate. So everyone is working hard. Everyone is striving to be productive, a productive member of the society. Everyone is striving to be content. So people are not getting more than they have. So on one hand, that's that. Then on the other, even in the cases where, for whatever reason, disability, um, financial times, accidents, health, uh, farming, and something happens and there's an inequality somewhere, those that have more than they need can always and are always willing to partner with those that need. If those two things can happen, you will be a country where everyone has what they need. And so what happens is, as you start to read that, you now start to see what Luke is doing in Acts. Because on one hand, Deuteronomy is what? A presentation of God's ideal, but a realization of man's inadequacy. That's the law, right? A presentation of God's ideal, but a realization of man's inadequacy. And so Acts comes and says, this here are now a, a group of people that have the spirit of God. Now the limitation of the human nature is gone because they are empowered with the spirits. What now happens? Acts 2. So in Deuteronomy 5, we see God saying, do this. In Acts 2, we actually see them doing it by the spirits. And as a result, no one lacked. Is it starting to make sense? Deuteronomy presents an idea, but makes it clear that is it not human beings? And then Acts comes and says, here is this early church, almost a presentation of perfection in a sense, until we get to Ananias and Sapphira, but almost a presentation of perfection of what it looks like when people trust completely in God, when people walk fully in the Spirit. And we see that ideal realized. And what is that idea? No one lacked anything because everyone got to a point where they saw God as their source, not their savings, not their bank account, not their job, God as their source, both those that had and those that didn't. And so some, were, some, some had more, some had less, and people were able to, to give such that everyone had what they needed. Now, we live in a world today where Acts 2 is not... What happens? We don't see people in the church as full of the Spirit as they should. We don't see everyone in the church trusting in the generosity of God. We see people trying to exploit. We see all these things. And so 
it might not be feasible anymore to live out that acts to lifestyle right now. If there are some communities where that is possible, where everyone is so full of the spirit and they are able to do that, then that's amazing. But now there have to be regulations. We see even in Timothy, Paul is like, if this person did not was not the husband of one wife, maybe you don't give to her. If this person did not wash the saints' feet, if this person is still young, right, and they are going to marry again, maybe don't give to them. So now we have to, there has to be administrative wisdom. And we see that even in Acts 6, right, as soon as people started to join, they're like, ah, these people, it says, oh, the Hellenists, they are getting more food than us. Already, human nature is coming into God's ideal. And so what Acts is doing is the same thing Deuteronomy is doing. It presents what an ideal can look like. If everyone was full of the Spirit, totally submitted to God, we would live in a world where there is no lack. Not because bad things aren't happening. Again, it's important to remember that we, so many times now we go to God, we, we go to our Christian community and say, you shall not like, and you think that means, oh, my business will always do well. Nothing bad would ever happen. There won't be a health emergency. I'm like, wow, that is what it means. No, at no point was that even what it meant. Whether in Deuteronomy for the Israelites or in Acts for the church. When God says you would be a people without lack, it was simply that you would be a people that would partner with my generosity and my abundance so much so that whenever needs arise, people are willing to step in. So even our idea of abundance, of God's favor, many times messed up. And these are things I need to address before we even start to read the passage. I hope it's making sense. So by Acts 6, Luke starts to tell us that ah, not everybody is full of the Spirit anymore. So much so that they are complaining, there are issues. And then what happens? The apostles are like, we can't leave prayer and preaching to be doing, have you got enough food for today? Oh, do you have, mm -mm. Let's appoint deacons. They appointed deacons full of the Spirit to handle that issue. And it's, it, it's almost, not almost, it's not an accident. I don't know if you've taken note of this before when you read Acts 6. So if you turn your Bibles to Acts 6 if you're not there already. The problem is mentioned with human nature, scarcity, and whatever. People are now being neglected. Again, the reason there is scarcity in the world is because of human nature. People are being neglected, right? Say, oh, these are Hellenists. They are Greeks. We're not going to give them as much as our Hebrew sisters. Tribalism. You're sharing food. You see a Yoruba man, you give him two meats. You see a Hausa man, you say, I'll give you just stew. Or for those Hausa Yoruba tribes where I'm from, for context, right? Um, you say, oh, this is, you're black like me. Take more. Ah, you're not black. No. Human nature. We start to divide, compartmentalize prefer, bias, all of those things. That is why there's issue in the world. Many times people say, why is there so much? The reason there is inequality, the reason there is world hunger is because we caused it. We caused it. We caused it. We caused it. <laughs> what if some people eat less meat? The end of series. <laughs> we caused it. But look at what happens in Acts 6. As soon as they appoint the deacons, Verse 6, they appoint them, they pray on them, lay hands. Verse 7, then the word of God spread. 
And the number of disciples multiplied greatly, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. As soon as that issue was, then it was a direct result. So in Acts 2, Acts 4, it says they had everything in common. They were spreading. The moment they stopped having everything in common, the moment pride and jealousy and bias started to come in, there was an issue. As soon as that issue was resolved, it goes back to spreading. It goes back to what I was saying, that if the church can be the church, the world will know. The world will know. And one of the areas the church really needs to get right again, especially in this time, is in generosity, in understanding what true generosity means. Before we start to talk about how much should you give, and this, that, these are foundational issues about perception, about greed, about human nature that we need to get through first. That we need to get through. That we need to get through. I love the point Angel put up in chat, and that's part of what I'm trying to explain. Said a lot of Christian communities don't have that depth of intimacy. A lot of people can think of others' financial struggle as a dent in the armor of their spiritual strength. Is it is all these problems that led us to that place where we think that lack means that you are less spiritual. That if you have a financial need or a need of some sort, then maybe you didn't trust God enough. Maybe your faith is weak. I mean, think about this is the church in Jerusalem. As we're going to read on in chapter 8 and 9, the reason they are giving to the church is because the church in Jerusalem is the spiritual powerhouse of the church of Christ. It says, you brought salvation to us. You are poor. We are going to help you. They didn't say, ah, this church, they've stopped praying. If they had fasted as they should, they would have, they would, us, are we, are we struggling? Are we poor? Why are they poor? They've done something wrong. It's those things. It's those things. Human nature. Let's go back to Deuteronomy as we round up for today. <laughs> I'll make sure this introduction does not reach part three. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. So, yeah. But I hope it makes sense. We see God's ideal for society, but we see that ideal never being met. Whether it's because of greed, the fear that your brother is going to cheat you, whether it's because of pride, whether it's because of the need for abundance. And what happens now is that there are people, whether from coming from the church's perspective or from the world's perspective, that read things like this and have tried to force that ideal without acknowledging the root of the problem, which is what? A sinful heart. And they've destroyed the world without going so much into social commentary, if you know anything about communism, that's what this is very similar to. The idea that everyone has a shared interest, a shared, um, we're all working for the good of the land. <laughs> that's the idea, right? And everywhere people have tried to implement it, because it's so beautiful. You read Deuteronomy 15. You read Acts. You read Acts. You're like, why can't I have that in my church? And you try to force it. You don't realize that the reason you can't have it is because the people's hearts are not aligned with God's. In China, up to 80 million people died of starvation, persecution, labor, um, prison labor, mass executions. And what the government was trying to do this. Oh, if everyone 
worked for the good of the land, everyone would have enough. They forgot one thing, sin. Same thing in Russia with Stalin's government. 20 million people killed or died. Same thing in Cambodia. They're like, ah, let's, this is the way society is meant to be. You might not be wrong, but you forget that there's a reason society is not that way. And so what I'm saying, I'm, so what I'm not saying is that you read Acts to you read Acts and say, ah, why are we not doing this in my church? Why can I not sell everything and bring it to the feet of my pastor <laughs> and trust that the church will also take care of me? This is why. Because both Deuteronomy and Acts, beyond trying to force an idea of financial or economic um, expression, is teaching you something bigger. That if everyone can partner with God's heart, things would look different. But we don't live in a world where everyone partners with God's heart. But you can still take efforts to get better and better, to make progress on that scale. Because at the end of the day, God's ideals can only be actualized God's way. That's what Jesus meant when he said, you can't put new wine in old wineskin. It will burst. You can't expect people to meet God's ideals if their hearts are not changed. That was the point of the law. That's the point of Matthew. God sees this. God sees that. God, I'm like, ah, I can't do this. And Jesus is like, that's the point. You can't. You read what true generosity, a true society operating on that God's generosity looks like. And you're like, God, I don't see how this is even possible. And God is like, that's the point. Without my spirit, it is not. And so as believers and as humans, we need to get to a point where we understand that our greatest solutions can't come from government. It can't come from policy. It can't come from humanitarian efforts. They are good. They should continue. But we need to understand that until the heart of man is delivered from selfishness, from greed, and from pride, nothing will change. People would always rise up to exploit the system. There would always be wealth gaps. There would always be race, racial issues. There would always be world hunger, the exploitation of capitalism, the failure of socialism, whatever you, whatever, all these issues, it will continue. Why? Because the issue is not in the system. The issue is in the heart of man. And so when Christians say that the greatest help the world needs is salvation, we're not being cheesy. We're not being socially unaware. We're not being uh, ignorant of issues. Like, all you Christians, you're going around, and it's salvation, salvation. Can't you see people are dying? Can't you see there's world hunger? Can't you see there's child rape, child abuse? Yes, we see it. And that is why we should be even more serious about evangelism. Because the, so, the solution is not in policy. The solution is not in some magical president that will just come and say, finally, I am here to set it straight. I am the one spoken of. In the volume of the books, it is written of me. No, he has already come. His name is Jesus. And until the heart of the world changes, none of these issues, they can get better over seasons. But as long as humans remain sinners, there would always be inequality, 
abuse, discrimination, selfishness, pride, greed, it will always be there. And we have decades and centuries of history to show us that whenever human beings try to do on their own what only the Spirit of God can do, it always results in more pain, more suffering, and more death. Amen. Amen. I hope it's making sense. These are very... Again, you'll be like, someone could come in and like, what are you guys talking about? We're talking about Christian generosity. Yes. But I hope you're understanding why it's important we start here. That even when we say Christian generosity, we're not just talking about, oh, this is a new, new principle your church should apply. If you can do this, your church will be more, mm -mm -mm. you've missed the point. You are starting from the end, but we're going to get there. But that's not where the issues are. That's not where the issues are. The same way you look at God's personal ideals in the law and you say that, ah, it only, it's only by the Spirit of God any person can meet up with this. It's the same thing in society. We see ideals and we know that until society is transformed by the gospel, we would never see God's, God's ideal realized. A world where everyone is treated fairly in this human heart. Impossible. A world where everyone has... I said, well, how did they... Um, uh, in the U.S. Constitution, um, right? Um, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Everyone will sit under their own vine and their own vine tree. <laughs> the American ideal in this in this broken world, impossible. Without the gospel, impossible. A world where world hunger is totally dealt with without the gospel, impossible. Where there is no pain, as in because it was literally that was Isaiah. Yeah, yeah, everyone will sit under their own. I don't know if it's Isaiah, and one of the prophets. Yeah, literally, it was a Bible verse. Um, a world where, like, oh, no more racism without the gospel, impossible. Where is that? Eh? No more uh, child prostitution. No more. How can God? God has given a solution. God has given a solution. And as a Christian, the, the moment you realize or you wake up to know that, yes, advocating for social change is good. But we have a perspective the, the regular person doesn't. We know where the problem lies. It's not in systems. It's not in policies. Even though they are good, they are good. And we should push for them. Better systems. Better policies. But the roots, the root of everything wrong in humanity is in a sinful heart. And no system no government, no policy can change a sinful heart. Only the gospel. Only the gospel. Only the gospel. Amen. I hope you've learned something today. I think we'll pause on this note. And so I'm done with my introduction. <laughs> From next week, we're going to start 2 Corinthians 8, chapter, verse 1, proper. Um, we've said a lot of things over last week and over this week. I hope you've learned. I hope there are things you're going to think about. I said a lot of things, and I, I want to appeal to you to think about them. Think about these things I've said. Think about, like, for instance, even that conversation on, oh, where does my worth come from? Do I like this thing because it's scarce? Or do I like it because I actually consider it valuable? Am I getting this thing 
because others don't have it, because I actually need it? Those are questions we should ask. Before we start saying, how can we be more generous? Those, these are the these are things. How can God? The first question: How can God transform my heart to 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 find my worth in Him, to find my abundance in Him, not in a better paying job, in Him first, in Him. How can He transform my heart to realize that I am merely a steward? And as long as I live in a world where people have less than I, I have an obligation to help them. Those, these, are the, these are the prayers, the considerations. Before we start saying it's 10%, 10%, 10% too much. Very, very relevant question. If you've not addressed, address these ones. Amen. I hope you've learned something today. All right. Um, on that note, any question for now before we take it? Up a notch next week. Oh, Delight, please go ahead. Yeah, I don't know if this is a question, but one thing I noticed about myself, because I went to a Christian school that really emphasized missions, and these people, and some of sometimes I like I don't know if like they're believers, sometimes they're believers will go to like all these places and do all this um, um, humanitarian work and then put all these images to solicit more fund that in a way I felt was dehumanizing. And then I've always been thinking about like how, like, like what about those kind of things come up? I, like just, I just get very annoyed in my heart. And I'm like, delight, but these people are getting, these people are getting funds that like you're not providing. Why is this, why is this such a very, why are you so, why is this, um, irritating you in a way so I think like I'm just like um like I don't know if it's like what should what should be our approach to because like or like charity or no, no charity organizations I'm just like thinking about like as a believer like supporting these organizations is very important but like I also want to like protect the dignity of whoever we're giving because I just feel like many times giving just feels like there's an agenda behind it I don't know if I'm asking a question I'm just like relaying a situation i feel like i'm also like examining my heart when yeah. i'm thinking about just how irritated i get yeah by that yeah I, I wouldn't really call it a question as much as it is more of an observation and it it goes back to some of the things we've said i mean i can't speak for charitable organizations i have heard um the good the bad and the ugly um things like exploitation and things like even like on your own personal life, right? And I talked, I kind of alluded to it. Like even when you're giving, if you feel good about giving, why are you feeling good about giving? Is it because the needs of people are being met or because your worth is somehow now tied to the fact that I'm a good person because I gave, right? Things like that. And if it's, imagine how much of a struggle it is personally just to share God's heart on what true generosity looks like. Now imagine how much harder it is for a society or an organization to do. And so, I mean, on some level, you're definitely right. There, there, there are and can be abuses of generosity. Um, but at the end of the day, I guess there's only so much you can do in evaluating other people's motives. I, I wouldn't really advise dwelling on that. Um, if, if the funds are being managed well and the people that need them are being 
catered for, then why not? Um, yeah, it's not it's not an easy it's not an easy um solution or answer or, or stuff like that. I even thought you were going to ask the easier one of oh churches that go somewhere and all they do is humanitarian efforts. Um, I wanted to say that in itself that's not bad as long as they understand what their real assignment is. Um, I advocate preaching the gospel where possible, but it's not an either or. We take care of the needs first within our community, and it's part of the things we're going to talk about, right? First within our community, and then the world. But then we also preach the gospel. Um, yes. Yeah, so I love the perspective IBK gave, right? That it's a form of digital footprint, right? To show people that you are actually using these funds, and also to solicit funds. It's kind of like accountability that this is the, the issue we are talking about is not fake first of all it's real also but your funds are helping these people um and like ibk said the motive is the main thing so there's only so much we can just talk about but there's a way to run charitable organizations with a godly motive that is true and it could still look similar in expression you would probably still show a picture of a starving child or something but the goal is not to, um, um, it's no different from someone from Jerusalem going to the Gentile churches and talking about what the famine looks like. I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't expressly call it dehumanizing um, in that sense because it's real, right? The pain is real, the struggle is real, and uh, it goes back to motive. Do you somehow feel you are now better than another human being? just because they have they don't have things you do so those are things like i said it's motive it's really hard to detect and to control the best is to check your heart and do what is in line with god's i godly motives right but thanks for raising that up thanks for raising that up um toyosi please go ahead um on this last question you kept on emphasizing on the spirit and how when People believe the gospel and obviously have the spirit of God in them, then it's easier to be generous. And we're you're talking about the church, because obviously you can't control what society does, because that's the solution to like everything. But the church, why is it that? I mean, I don't even I feel like this question even asked, but why is it because if we're Christians and we have the spirit of God, then in a sense, why is it not automatic? Like why is it like not? Like why why is it, why is generating more like this when the church did it? Because we have the spirit of God. And that's why is it not what I didn't cut that word. Why is it not? Why is it not like automatic in automatic. the sense that people are more generous? Gotcha. Like, people are just more generous because that's like most of the things we emphasize. And if it's not even working in the church, then how can you convince um the society that once they yeah. have the spirit, people will always have when like we can't see that. I know church is good, but we can't say it's every church is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you've pretty much summed up my... That's the point of my sermon, right? <laughs> that the church needs to get to a point, which was still in line with the first thing I said, beyond acts of devotion, the results of devotion. The church needs to get to a point where we actually walk in the Spirit. And so the answer to your question is simple. Everyone in the church is meant to have the Spirit. Does everyone in church walk in the Spirit? The answer is no. I mean, the very people Paul is writing to, there was someone sleeping with his father's wife. So... <laughs> Is that normal? Is that even unbelievers? They're like, ah, this is a new one, <laughs> right? 
Um, again, it's the thing of ideal. The goal of every spiritual organization, every church, let me not say spiritual organization because that means a lot of things in this world. The goal of every church is to ensure through collective accountability that his members walk more and more in the spirit and become more like Christ. The goal of every pastor or every spiritual leader is to supervise that growth. And so even though we we won't say, but there might not, there is hardly any church that can speak like the church has asked to ask for would have spoken. The goal of every church and the goal of every pastor is to say, how can we, how can we, how can we build a culture where people are walking more in the spirit in the area of generosity? It starts with teachings like this, and then even more practical steps of accountability that we're going to talk about. In chapter eight and nine, but yes, the 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 answer to your question is the answer to every question wrong, every question about issues with the church. The church is a collection of people who are in different journeys in their walk with God, some more serious than others, unfortunately. And so we would never be in a community, or not never, but you would hardly find a community that is filled with mature believers with no issues whatsoever that's just not what it's going to be it wasn't the case um as the church spread it's not the case now all we can do is make sure that we play our part in ensuring that our lives and our community becomes more and more like god's ideal that's all we can honestly do but good question um final question and then we'll pray and call it a day I often struggle with knowing how to prioritize my giving. In as much as I know the church will come first, I always have the desire to give some organizations that help the needy. Most times I end up directing all my giving to the church because I feel there's still more need within the church, but deep within, I know that there's these other places or maybe even people that I know have needs. Can you say something on that? Very good question. I would I would speak briefly, but I would be, I would implore you that you wait till we're done with chapter 8 and chapter 9, because we're going to talk about this as well. Um, what you are wrestling with is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Um, meaning the needs of the church versus needs of organizations that help the needy, and then even personal people you know personally that have needs too. I think one of the reasons you're struggling with that is, again, it goes back to what we said, Many times now, church needs are usually described as things churches need to buy to help services run better. That was not a thing until there was more infrastructure associated with the churches. In the early church, they met in their houses. The best a church needed was food (laughs) for its members or like people need food or people need a house to stay. Ideally, church needs should go beyond infrastructure church needs are the needs of the people of the church and i said that then because you see that in israel in the Deuteronomy 15 it was clear it says this whole loan forgiveness thing is for israelites so it's not for foreigners this um um the whole you get the whole general is first for israelites and all of that and even in the church there was a clear idea that oh it's the needs of the people within the church first but first does not mean alone Salvation was to the Jews first. 
not to the Jews alone. And first, it does not mean that until all Jews were saved before we started to bring the message to the Gentiles. And I think, um, and I'm going to talk about this, thank God, in chapter 8, about our conscience in giving and how we can build healthier consciences. Because it's very easy to get to a point where your conscience starts to condemn you. So for instance, there's clear instructions that if you give within your ability, God is happy. But you now start to say, ah, I have to give to the point where I'm suffering. If not, I don't feel like I've given. That's an unhealthy conscience. Somewhere along the line, your views on generosity have been corrupted. Maybe by teachings you've heard growing up. Maybe by a desire that until I give something that pays me, God will not bless me. And so you are chasing blessings. I'm going to talk about all of that. But um, um, just as a rule of thumb, literally, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians? He says, look, evaluate your financial situation. What can I give? And so for some people, you are the one in need. I want you to think about that, right? For the church in Jerusalem, they were not giving anything. Their role in generosity was to receive, <laughs> not to give, because they didn't have anything. And of course, you can be like the Macedonian church and receive commendation from God where you don't have anything, but you still give, but it's not a requirement. Things like that. Some people's consciences can't do that. They can't accept that. That, oh, I'm actually in a position where I'm in debt. I don't have it. Even the income I'm getting, it is to pay off debt. <laughs> but then your conscience is still troubling you because you feel like you're not being generous. And... We'll talk about that next week. I I I want to. I don't want to start to teach on next week's teaching how to be generous in spite of ability, but then to also be honest with yourself, right? The widow gave two mites. That's all she had. That's all she had. Um, but I will say though that biblically we have precedents to saying that the needs of a believing community tends to come first. But then, if you know someone personally that has asked you for money, I do think if you have, or not money, or for need, for help, if you have the resources, please help that person. Literally, he said, Jesus gave an example. Your parents, you said, oh, I've decided to give this money to the church. Your parents have needs. He says, you're a hypocrite, <laughs> Right? Anyone that cannot provide for his house is worse than... If you have friends, if you have people in your personal circle that need help, please prioritize their needs. And then you can prioritize the needs of your church community. But then there's also a place for outward generosity. And so my point is, it doesn't have to be an either or. For me personally, it's in my budget. Like my monthly budget, there's money for the church. But there are also NGOs I partner with that I give to every month. Right, I wouldn't now say, "Oh, but the church still has need." I'll now stop giving to the NGO and give to again. First does not mean only. So there's also a money for there's also a budget in my my personal budget for the needs of my friends, and so it's something you can budget for. Plan that I would give to my to people in my immediate circle. I'll give to my church and trust that they would use the funds appropriately, and I would also give to that person on the street, to that organization. So yes, create a healthy balance and resolve in your conscience that just because all your money is not going to the church does not mean you are doing something wrong. All right? 
Because at the end of the day, the church is even meant to be a group of people. So it's still going to people at the end of the day. Um, but very good question. Just bear with that answer for now. We're going to talk more about it when we get to the practicality of generosity as we start to read through chapter 8 and chapter 9. All right. Great questions. Great questions. Great questions. There's a lot to say on this given issue. What I would really, really appreciate, um, start gathering your questions. Start gathering your questions. If it's related to what we've talked about so far, ask it. If it's not, just say, I'm, I'm timing this, Daniel. If by the end of our teaching, I haven't addressed it. When we're officially done, I will now open it up for any question on generosity whatsoever. All right? Um, so just start taking note of your questions and let's see how we go. Chapter, oh, we have chapter eight, chapter nine, and then I'm going to do a separate teaching on tithing and then I would open it up for questions altogether because I know there will probably be questions on tithing if I, if I don't teach on tithing. So, I want to just talk about that and then um would uh would uh would would hopefully be in a very good place when it comes to understanding Christian generosity. All right, thank you all for your time. I kept you guys for like almost 20 minutes over. So thank you for being here. You love God. God loves you. I love you. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today's teaching. Thank you for your word, for challenging us, for reminding us, for correcting us, and for instructing us. I pray just one thing, Lord, that we are doers of your word. That as far as generosity is concerned, we all build hearts that are sensitive, responsive to your spirits, that look to you as our source, not to our wealth, not to our jobs, not to our material possessions, that we are generous, truly generous in heart and then indeed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. All right, let's share the benediction together. Uh, I'll go ahead to share my screen. So gracious to prepare to us. Bye. Bukiana. <laughs> um can you all see my screen? I believe you can. Let's feel free to meet yourself. Let's read together. One, two, go. I am a diligent, am a diligent student, student and doer of the word. I am a teacher of the word. The word is profitable for my growth. By the word, I am corrected. By the word, I am trained in righteousness. And in the word, my spirit rejoices. Hallelujah. 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 Always, always a pleasure to do this with you all. I hope you've learned something. I hope you have things to think about. And if this blessed you, share with someone. I said we should do it after this screen. <laughs> One day, maybe next week. You're all welcome. You're all welcome. Um, I'll see you guys next week, same time. Have a great week. Bye. All right. Now we've come to the end of today's episode and I hoped that it blessed you in many more ways than one. 
And if it did, I want you to do a couple things for me. The first thing is I want you to take out some time to pray and to meditate over the things you've learned in today's teaching and to see how you can begin to apply it to your life, starting from this week. Because it's important we remember, we're not just to be hearers, but doers of the word as well. The second thing I would appreciate is to think about someone you can send this to. If this teaching has blessed you, then pass it on to a friend, to a coworker, to someone you know who needs to hear this. And finally, don't forget to leave a like, subscribe, leave a comment if you're feeling up to it. And I'll catch you in the next episode. God bless you. Bye.